Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. And if you're listening to it, that would make you one of the friends. Uh, let's see. Current events. Uh, oh, 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 oh. Uh, uh, very proud to announce a very big piece of news um, in my life. Uh, I, 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 I am more proud of this than I am of the fact that I recently graduated from university. I have finished reading Moby Dick. Oh no, so, like not an air horn. It should be like a. Yeah, Uh, it's amazing. It's an incredible book. Uh, It's, I mean, it's it's a huge book. I, I'm, I'm actually starting to write a whole special episode of this podcast just about that book. And like, there's like been four film adaptations. One of them by Asylum Production. It's not. There's so much um, uh, Moby Dick based content. So uh, yeah. Uh, look, look for that. But I, I feel like that's sort of very personal news. Um, so, uh, here's something like that's happening in the world, I guess, uh, pop culture. Uh, the trailer just dropped yesterday for Zack Snyder's new movie that's coming out on Netflix next month called Army of the Dead. And I mean, I, I started watching the trailer and I was like, uh, this is, uh, this is okay. I mean, I, I love me some Dave Bautista. And it, it's cool to see him in, you know, big, big, exciting franchise stuff without having to have a bunch of makeup on. Because I think the dude is really charismatic and, and has a lot of range as an actor. And it's exciting to see him in anything, really. He was he was my favorite, pretty much my favorite performance in Blade Runner 2049. And uh, he was so much fun in Spectre, even though he didn't really get to talk. So it's like, it's... It's exciting to see the dude getting work. I, 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 I like Batista. But the trailer went from, oh, this is a fun trailer of a movie I might watch at some point, to this is a movie that I will be watching day one, like at midnight when it becomes available as soon as, like, so the, the movie is, like, about this, these, like, mercenaries who go on to, like, get some money from under a bunch of zombies or something. It's just, like, a bunch of mercenaries and zombies. And then the trailer shows, like, flashes of the whole mercenary team you know there's like big muscular black dude with like a a circular saw and like a you know uh uh vasquez type like latina with like a badass like tank top or whatever you know it's just like all the kind of mercenaries that you'd see in a mercenary crew and then all of a sudden there's a shot and apparently tignataro was in this film and so it's Tignataro wearing aviator sunglasses with a gas can putting gas into something while smoking a swisher sweet cigarette uh cigar cigarillo swisher sweet i don't give a sh- like i trying to describe this image and i'm having a hard time talking so anyway yeah go watch that trailer for army of the dead um it's, it's I mean, yeah, the, the movie has a zombie tiger. There's plenty of things that make me want to watch the movie, but 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 but, but, but Tignataro pouring gasoline while wearing aviator sunglasses and smoking a Swisher Sweet—that that's my button to see. So uh, anyway, 
that does it for current events. Uh, let's move on. Let's do a podcast. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less. Including these 11. Who imposed this rule? I think it was you. Sarah? How did you get down to L.A.? What are you doing in my head? The First 20 Hours. How to Learn Anything Fast. By Josh Kaufman. If you've ever dreamed about picking up a musical instrument, learning a new language, or mastering a board game you've never played, this is a great book for you. The title is somewhat misleading. The methods described herein are simply well-channeled hard work, but that is what makes this book so vital to those who want to learn new things. Kaufman's method breaks down almost any skill into component parts, focuses on the areas that can improve the quickest, and then builds from there. This is not a promise of easy mastery, but rather a set of guidelines to help get you past the initial frustrations of the first few hours of learning. I bet my old roommate wishes I'd had this when I got my first accordion. Sorry, Micah. Not everything here is going to be helpful in all cases, and this dude definitely has money to burn when picking up new skills, but I still found quite a bit to love, and numerous useful anecdotes and practice strategies. It's an excellent book for self-motivated learners. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I just finished reading Moby Dick. And, you know, I, I thought, let's let's have a little light reading after finishing Moby Dick. So I started reading Don Quixote um, about three quarters of the way through Don Quixote. And again, it's, it's another one of those like classic books that is not really what you think it is like. I mean, yeah, Don Quixote is like, yeah, he charges at the windmills and he thinks he's a knight and Sancho Pons is following him around and, you know, he steals the barber's bowl and, and um, you know, sees flocks of sheep and thinks they're armies, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, like, the book is also wildly meta. So Don Quixote is divided into two parts. The first part was published in 1605 and part two was published, I think, in... 1614 something like that so like about 10 years in between and in part two the part one exists in the universe so don quixote and sancho panza are like wandering around meeting people who have read the first book and then they're commenting on the way that the first book is written and like it's cervantes responding to inconsistencies in the first volume of his book like it, it's meta af and like i I, I, I just wasn't expecting that. Like, like literally, there's a scene where Don Quixote shows up at the printing press where... Okay, oh, sorry, backing up. It took Cervantes so long to publish part two that a, a rival wrote his own part two and published it. Like, it's bananas. Like, it, it's like if... um. Literally any talented writer wrote the end of Game of Thrones before George R. R. Martin did. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so there, there's this rival who wrote like, and he writes like a, a shitty version of Don Quixote. So uh, the, the, the rival did. Anyway, Don Quixote ends up showing up at a publishing house where they're like printing the sequel and then he like sees it he's like what the hell it's it's so great oh my gosh it's 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 oh 
Yeah. Uh, that, so yeah, I'm. I'm. I, at some point, I'll finish that and I'll. I'll talk about it more. But yeah, Don Quixote. It's. Uh, it's great. It's. It's way more meta than I thought, and it, it's so many more poop jokes. Like it, it's very scatological. Like. Like almost Jonathan Swift levels of scatological. Like n- not quite the Tangbokulinia. Like in terms of like poop jokes, but like close. So yeah, uh, Don Quixote. <laughs> Here's something I've been mulling. Are you sure you're hearing what you think you're hearing? We've all heard that old saw about the multiple blind men examining an elephant, each encountering a different part of the creature and thinking it describes the whole. One encounters the tail and thinks the beast like a rope, another the leg and describes a tree, to a third the broad side suggests a stoutly built wall, and so on. Long suffering of this hypothetical pachyderm notwithstanding, I always found it somewhat confusing that the blind men are supposedly unable to compare notes and arrive at a complex appreciation built from their combined knowledge. I get this is the point of the tale, that people seldom incorporate the experiences of others into their worldview, and yet we so often do. We all have opinions built on nothing more than the stories other people have told us. We read a book that explains the current state of U.S. immigration policy, and we take the author at their word. We trust our friends to recommend films. We don't visit that pub with only three stars on TripAdvisor. Is is, is TripAdvisor still a thing? Like, I, I mean, like, how do people not know to go to things or, or do things? Or, like, is there like a TikTok for giving things stars? I, I just feel really out of the loop. Um, is this what it feels like to be on hip? Anyway, we construct our reality out of the information we take in, whether it is our own experience or that of others. I myself certainly allowed the sunscreen song to color my opinions of New York City. I'm referencing that pair of lines, live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. I have spent a significant amount of time in both of these places, and I'll be blasted if I don't find this pair of lines true, insomuch as they say something about the effect both locales had on me. But was it the locales, or was it my perception based upon a worldview constructed regarding both places based on the song? If we're going to construct a worldview based around the things other people say, we had best make sure we at the very least understand what they are trying to communicate. This goes doubly if we are going to have negative feelings about them. We had better make absolutely sure we understand what people mean when they use words like liberal, hegemony, gluten, organic, enticing, or lactose. Each of the words in the preceding list, by the way, has something in common. They all caused upset between myself and someone I was communicating with because we were operating from different definitions of the word in question. How on earth can you possibly form a coherent opinion of the person you are arguing with if you refuse to grapple with their definition of the matter at hand? A couple of years ago, I had a spot of drama with a good friend of mine. I was emceeing a show that my friend appeared in, and for reasons that were nobody's fault in particular, I inadvertently caused offense. Because we were in the middle of a show, we just had to move on, finish the performance, and... 
move on with the evening. Several days later, when things had settled down and we were able to speak and talk things through, but in the moment, it was hairy. The conversation that we had, though, was wonderful, and I think the vulnerability shared actually deepened our friendship. I'm sorry if this whole story seems a bit occulted. Although my friend and I are good now, I have no desire to open old wounds by sharing anyone's story but my own. I can only speak to my own feelings in this business, not anyone else's. (laughs) Ain't that life. The incident and its following conversation have stuck with me in the following years because of a specific thing my friend said to me on the phone during our conversation. My friend recounted going home that evening, sitting down and pondering the events of the show. This reflection led to a realization. My friend said something along the lines of, So I was sitting there, and I realized... Wait a minute. Strangely's not an asshole. I don't share this because I find myself to be a particularly wonderful person. We can deal with my self-loathing another time. I share it because I have incorporated this parlance into my own worldview when encountering situations that tempt me to label my interlocutor as an asshole or worse. I can remember my exact thought processes leading up to the moment that I caused offense to my friend and how I felt afterwards. I can see where I erred, but I can also attest that I had exactly zero malice in my heart, and frankly, I made the best decision given the information I had. It still turned out to be the wrong one. I was a bad MC, but I wasn't an asshole. My friend was able to realize that, although prior to our conversation, I would not have used the same wording, I had come to a similar position. This mutual acceptance of a distinct lack of assholery on both sides of the rift allowed us to quickly bridge the gap and come to a place of understanding in the precarious and frightening space between the solid grounds of our own respective minds. Now, this is easier said than done. I have lost a number of friends, dear people I thought I could trust to at least base their primary mode of interaction with me on the principle of, wait a minute, Strangely's not an asshole. I'm guilty of it too. We all have a breaking point where we just decide that the person that we thought we knew has become an asshole. So, how can we avoid this disastrous label and possibly preserve relationships in the process? I think a key component of this understanding is developing a way to engage with the terminology that both of you are working with. Uh, Let me explain. I've spent the last two years of my life up to my eyeballs in academia. I could go on and on about the annoying things that world engages in, the countless bureaucratic hoops one has to jump through just to do something as simple as sign up for a class that one then pays hundreds of dollars for, but I'll refrain from now. I'm trying to build bridges today. (laughs) We'll have our day, academia. (laughs) I wanted to make this aside menacing, but I spelled academia wrong, and it just looks like macadamia. (laughs) Nuts. Something macadamia does really well is spending time defining and clarifying terms. If you've ever wondered why strange combinations of words like cultural hegemony or institutionalized racism have entered common parlance, it is often because an academic coined and then defined those terms in a paper. This has a long-standing tradition in academic writing, being conscious that if you are using a new word or an old one in a new way, you need to take the time to explain this new usage. 
Not only have I spent endless hours reading pages of text seemingly unrelated to the overall thrust of a given paper as the writer explains that what they mean when they say dust with a capital D is more than what would be meant if they were just referring to the common household variety with a small d. Not only that, dear friends, I have also been guilty of writing such long-winded definitions myself. It goes without saying, words have meaning. I'm hardly the first person to point that out, nor the billionth for that matter. This is why anyone who wants to change a word needs to spend a significant amount of time explaining themselves. I've lost count of the times I've been caught pronouncing a word incorrectly because I've only ever seen it in print, or heard someone else pronounce it wrong, looking at you, Jodie Foster, saying primer. I say primer when I'm talking about, like, an early introduction to something because I heard Jodie Foster say primer in the movie Contact back in the 90s. Primer. This also accounts for the times I've used a word incorrectly because I've inferred its meaning from context alone. I love words. I love learning new ones, and my love often runs far ahead of my definitional understanding. The tremendous potential for such misunderstandings to sow discord between even the best of friends is something that I've recently become aware of in its absence. Because most of us are staying home quite a bit, I've been able to revive one of my favorite activities from childhood, the long phone call. I'm, I'm talking long, like so long that I have actually learned that my phone just hangs up after two hours and 55 minutes. It's like, <laughs> you're done. I'm going to just hang up. Like, long phone calls. And this has led to numerous conversations with friends that last for hours and hours. If you spend that much time talking, especially in an environment where your ability to read things like body language and facial expression is severely hampered, difficulties are bound to arise. Fortunately, I have known most of my friends for years, and they are generally people who are able to patiently ask me a couple of clarifying questions before consigning me to the dustbin of history. I too have worked on my ability to ask for a bit of clarification. The end result of all this is the startling discovery that, in most instances, my friend and I had much closer opinions than we initially thought based upon our first reaction to one another's stated positions. Now, it might seem like a vain hope that such misunderstandings are at cause in many larger disagreements in modern society, but I personally believe that they could be. In fact, I think oftentimes they are. Naturally, if you were speaking to a French person, you would not insist that them saying we, as in French for yes, was referring to a group of multiple persons, as its homonym, the English we, might imply. And yet, these kind of misunderstandings happen all the time between speakers of the same language. It is most common to recognize this disparity between people of different generations, with parents lamenting that they feel like their children are speaking a, quote, different language. In the past, hat comedians have pointed out similar discrepancies between the communication styles of men and women to take two of many possible genders arbitrarily and contrast them, occasionally going so far as to assign them to different planets. All joking aside, it is not too hard to think of a situation in your own life where you found yourself trying to communicate to someone only to feel like they were speaking an entirely different language. It can be easy to feel like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole to a world where up is down when you encounter such a situation. 
especially within the community of your hometown, city, borough, village, whatever, there are probably accepted practices that most people conform to. There's a rhythm to how you go about your days, an appropriate amount of time to chat with the clerk at the apothecary, and a language you all ostensibly speak. And yet, do you? The mutability and constant shifting nature of language make things difficult when you're trying to set a single standard. I mean, just look at the French. The Académie Française certainly tries to keep things under control, but just, well, it's a merci-less task if ever there was one. <laughs> People constantly shift language to suit the purposes of the moment. New words are coined all the time by combining multiple old ones. Just think of eyeball, microchip, or the ridiculous predilection modern English speakers have to append the word gate to the end of anything and everything in order to connote a scandal. Please don't at me about this. The last thing I need is to be at the center of a maelstrom called Gategate. Unless we could get Bill Gates on, in on it. Maybe he's being a dick and gatekeeping me from having an opinion on Gategate. Bill Gates, Gates, Gategate? Sorry, I'll stop. Misguided or not, this practice is just another part of the human tendency to repurpose whatever is lying around to the needs at hand. The results of this can be seen everywhere we look, and they often sow discord among ordinary, well-meaning people. It is rare to encounter a person who spends the time to really understand their opposition. There is a conflict resolution technique known as Rogerian argument, or sometimes Rogerian rhetoric, named after someone named Roger, apparently, uh, which is built on being able to state your opponent's arguments as clearly as possible and to their satisfaction. Only once the person has felt truly heard and understood can you then discuss your disagreements with their position. You can immediately see the benefits of such an outlook and what they would be. There's not a person alive who, armed with intelligent and factual information, has not been dismissed by an older person who shakes their head and opines that you will understand when you are older, even as they dismiss whatever it is you were trying to say. They lacked even the courtesy to truly communicate that they understood what you were trying to communicate about. Furthermore, they refused to engage with what might be the deeper issues behind the stated position you are advocating for. In his 2019 book, Digital Minimalism, Cal Newport writes about his friendships with Washington, D.C. lobbyists. Just, just bear with me. These people make their living arguing on behalf of some position or other in front of the government of the United States often with millions, if not billions of dollars, riding on their arguments. It goes without saying that it behooves anyone in such a high-pressure situation to use the best tools imaginable. Newport also notes the effect this has on their personal lives. Quote, In private, they don't exhibit the same anxious urge to tilt at straw man versions of the opposing viewpoints that's exhibited in, by most amateur political commentators and instead are able to isolate the key underlying issues or identify the interesting nuances that complicate the matter at hand. I suspect they derive much more pleasure out of consuming political commentary than those who merely seek confirmation that anyone who disagrees is deranged." Unquote. Am I advocating that we be more like lobbyists? Not exactly. But considering how effective some of them are, I mean, 
Just look at how long tobacco wasn't really regulated in the United States, or look at how pervasive vaping is now. Considering how effective they are, shouldn't we at least engage with their methods? Look, if everyone in my town was poor, and then I found out one of my neighbors was rich, and the only thing he did differently from me was to wear his pants backwards, well, I, I don't have to tell you which way the trousers would button. Might not be the best example, but I have been reading a lot of Don Quixote. So, uh, th th this loops me back around to my original point about understanding the key terms being used in any argument or debate. It can be incredibly difficult to find a source of empathy for someone you are disagreeing with, but it becomes all but impossible if you are willfully avoiding engagement with the way that they are constructing their reality. D don't forget that there are people who are just making do with what they have been given up to the point they met you, and they might very well not have received all the inputs that allowed you to construct the blameless ivory tower of moral superiority you currently occupy. Goodness knows, I'm sitting in a pretty shaky tower. Not sure about you. Okay, bring it home, strangely. Get to the point. If there's a point I'm driving at here, it's this. There are any number of reasons to dismiss someone's position as incorrect or morally reprehensible, but a misunderstanding of the terminology underlying their position should never be one of them. If you're willing to consider the possibility that the person you're talking to is not an asshole, or at least not intentionally indulging in assholery, then at least try to understand the terminology of their position. And I mean, honestly, it could reveal a secret enemy, like those conservative piss babies who've just started wandering around claiming to be classical liberals. Like, what is that even classical liberals? Like, yes, we like smartness like the ancient Greeks, but without the gay sex. Uh, that's going to need a whole essay to unpack. But, but then again, if you're lucky, taking a moment to understand the intended meaning behind the specific words someone is using might also reveal an unexpected ally. Whew, I need more coffee. Song of the week. So for the last couple of weeks, I've been hard at work in the studio uh, recording a brand new album, and uh, it's, it's wild to be back at that. I, uh, it's been almost four years since I made my last album, and... Uh, I've written, I've written some songs that I'm really, really proud of since then. I wrote my song, Yogurt, which is one of my favorite songs to play. I wrote my song, Glasses High, for my friend's wedding in Finland. Uh, yeah, I've, just, I've, I've not recorded a lot of these songs. And, and, and since quarantine, I've written about six new songs that I'm, I'm really excited to start touring. So I've been recording them. I mean, I mean you know, that Sweet Cron song from a couple weeks ago, is, uh, that's just, that's some top tier uh, gold star strangely right there. I'm not gold star in anything. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but one of the things that I'm doing on this album is I'm actually recording some of my intro stories. So, so I, I, I often when I'm performing a live show, I'll tell a story to set up the song, you know, I'll kind of, I'll, uh, there'll be a, there'll be a little bit of world building to kind of set the scene. And, and for me as a performer, that's just as critical as nailing the song is kind of delivering the story. So for my song yogurt, which is going to be on the album, I recorded 
the sort of intro tale to go with it. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna share that with you now, and uh, it's it's got me playing accordion along with it, and it's just sort of it, it, I felt like I captured just about the best version of of this little story uh, blurb thing I've I've ever done. So I I hope I hope you folks enjoy it. Here we go. Uh, this is my intro to my song Yogurt. In my many years as a traveling cabaret weirdo, I have performed my art in many exotic lands. You know, places like Finland, Scotland, Ireland, Iceland, Portland. And of all those exotic lands, one of my most favorites is definitely Finland. Because, well, you see, all the people in Finland, they, they they, they do speak English. In fact, they speak English gooder than I do. But, but they don't have all of the colloquialisms, the idioms, the turns of phrase that you'll hear from a, a native English speaker such as myself. And so, when people come to my show in Finland, they... They smile, they nod, they clap along, but they, they don't quite seem to know what's happening. And then after the show, they come up to me, and they're very kind, and they say things like, When you were up there with no pants on, it was so funny. I was laughing because I had no fucking idea what you were saying. Because, again, they speak English, but not the same English. So I wrote this song to give all of you native English speakers the same experience as a Finnish person at one of my shows. That feeling of, I know these words, but not this order. Mailbag. I'm going to be back in Bellingham in a couple weeks, so if you want to send me mail in the post, you send it to strangely at 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225, number 11. Uh, you know, send me weird stuff. Send me, send me like old moldy taxidermy or, or you know, photos of, of Grover Cleveland or, or you know, um, you know, if maybe maybe you have like a, a a rubber duck that has devil horns. I don't know. Just send me some some send me something weird, and I'll talk about it on the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Uh, I hope you folks are enjoying this. I'm I'm actually finding it easier to produce this on a weekly schedule and, and I want to keep it up uh, so I, I, I hope you folks are enjoying the regular updates along um, right now because of, of COVID times this is <laughs> this is the only thing I do that makes me any money so a huge extra giant shout out of thanks to everyone supporting me on Patreon uh, I, I'm literally feeding myself by making these podcast episodes right now 
special thanks to my executive producer patrons Kim Truitt and Tina Jones and everybody else on Patreon. It's uh, it's just wonderful to know that there are people listening to this podcast. So thanks. You can visit patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of this if you're not already a Patreon subscriber. And uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I have to do the, the production thing, right? Uh, <clears throat> I'll put on my NPR voice. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Deucebark. Uh, oh man, I, I totally forgot to have a joke prepared. Um, how about how about I just read you a, another random Ogden Nash poem? Uh, if I can find my Ogden Nash my Ogden Nash book. Uh, he, uh, mm, no, uh, mm, I I can't find it. Oh man. Uh, uh, okay, okay. Uh, I'll do one. I'll do one from memory. Uh, okay. Whales have calves. Cats have g- kittens. Seals have pups, bats have bittens. Cows have calves, dogs have puppies. But guppies just have little guppies. Uh, that, that poem is called The Guppy. Anyway, uh, I'll see y'all next week. <laughs>